This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome, everyone, to yet another episode of Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z. I'm Matt Fonslow, and tonight I have the distinct pleasure of having Liz Perkins' husband on. So, I mean, I think that's really what he goes by. That's how I knew him. Every day. Keith Perkins of L1 Automotive and L1 Training. And he is a course developer for CTI. He does almost as many things as Tanner Brandt. Almost. (laughs) Almost. He has more scan tools than Tanner, for sure. I think he's got more than me. I don't know if that's saying much in the grand scheme. But before we get rolling, I want to say thank you to our sponsor, Napa Auto Tech Training. Napa Auto Tech offers three-hour virtual technical classes that can be accessed from the comfort of your home. To find out what courses are available, go to NapaAutoTech.com and click on the Napa Auto Tech class calendar link. Well, thank you for swinging in here, Mr. Perkins, sir. Thanks for having me. Been trying to get this kicked off for a while, right? <laughs> yeah, it has been a little bit, eh? It's kind of funny because every time we talk, we're like, hmm, we probably should have recorded that. <laughs> probably. <laughs> There's a few that would have been really good. Yeah. I'll have to get an app or something. Yeah. Hit the record on the old phone call. Right. Just submit it. Yeah. This is on the right home. Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Just don't tell anybody. Just do it. You know, asking for forgiveness over permissions, a a motto I try to live by. I do that a lot. I have been Liz's husband for 17 years almost. So wow, I do my best to get away with as much as possible. I don't know how you do it, man. (laughs) I don't know how I've lasted this long. Without getting told I need to go away. You said there was some yard work or something that needed to get done yet. And then, oh my God, you might want to drag your feet on that. Yeah. I'm just delaying the completion. So I have to be here. Right. There you go. That's smart. Because <laughs> if there isn't another project to take its place, you're in trouble. Oh yeah. I'm fairly positive the day I retire, I'll probably be close to my expiration date as a human being. I don't think I can make it. That's my retirement plan. Yeah. The retirement party will probably coincide with my funeral. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of us are like that. I can't see myself not doing something. Yeah, there's that. And then I just keep buying stuff. So Yeah, that too. <laughs> stuff I need like a hole in the head. Yeah. Graphing snap on brick. Right. You're like, but it's a good Vantage Pro. It's still in great shape. Yeah, I got three of those because I guess I figure if they break, what do I do? I can't really send them anywhere. Maybe I could fix it, but I don't know, depending on what goes bad. I use them a lot. With the Master Tech, with the MTS 3100s, I got a bunch of them. Yeah, that's a good tool too. I got the one channel scope, the two channel scope attachment. I've got one that's green, one that's gray, one that says Kia, one that says Toyota. Oh, wow. Yeah, I got a red one that says Kia. I actually sent it off to, I actually gave it to Ira Waldman for him to jack parts out of. Nice. I told him I don't care if it ever works, just as long as it's complete because it says Kia and I have it and I've never seen one before that anyone else has had. I've got the Highscan Pro. Yeah, I got a Highscan somewhere. I've used it once. 88 first year for Hyundai in the U.S. So it would have been like 89 or what, 92, 93? Something like that. Yep. Yeah. When I needed it, it worked like gangbusters. And I'm pretty sure I needed it. I didn't have anything else that would do anything, including, well, I guess at the time, iScan would not have been very strong on Hyundai Kia anyways. Snap-on was worthless. Autel at the time, which is probably 708 time days when I was trying to do that. So pre-Max Assist series. It may have done something, but I don't think it would have had the cable for the OBD-1. OBD zero, yeah. <laughs> whatever Hyundai was using. I think I have three DRB3s, same reason. So I played back and forth with the DRB3 after mine broke. 
for so long and then just bought the emulator from controller tech as an afterthought it is a far superior functioning tool nice that was my worry was like it's an afterthought so it'll either be better than the original or suck to a degree that is like completely disrespectful honestly (laughs) so i was like this is either going to be the best thing ever or the worst thing ever because the cost is the same you could get a good used drb3 kit for about what you would pay for this controller technologies unit very impressed i'll say that i like it works well that's kind of awesome yeah i ended up buying these one i think i got for criminally low price Mm -hmm. and then another one from a good friend maybe he went and got the emulator i don't know he said he just doesn't use it anymore and i'm sitting there like god i use mine where's his friend at chicago Mm, well yeah how much of that stuff is still around in chicago i don't know got my drb3 going a couple times a month yeah once or twice a month that's where we're at on it so we do lots of five nine diesel trucks an amount of crossfires that makes me upset <laughs> and, and sprinters oh yeah sprinters same thing i actually bought a snap-on not too long ago a Varus Edge. I bought like a real snap-on. Wow. I know, right? What was going on that day? And then a week ago, I started paying monthly to keep it up to date. I actually, I'm going to I'm gonna keep it updated as well. It was the intelligent diagnostics. I knew it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no, I mean, so realistically, I've got a decent base of individuals that look to me for some training content. And when polled, a larger percentage than not have a snap-on as their primary oscilloscope. And I just don't use it at all for that. So I purchased it to like, well, I need to get more familiar with the Snap-on scope navigating it. It's pretty simple. I get it. I understand the time-based function over what we're used to as Pico users. And I even understand the reasoning. It actually does make sense from the standpoint of how it's designed, but it's just counterintuitive when you're used to using a Pico. For those that aren't aware, like with a Pico scope, you would pick your time per division. So if you pick 10 milliseconds per division, you have 100 milliseconds of time across the screen because you got 10 divisions. And then you can zoom in from there because you have a very large sample rate available to you, if depending upon how you have it set up. Because the way the buffer is built, you have to zoom into a level in which it's not really usable live and then take that that capture and then there from there you can zoom out of the capture to see it in a pattern that's more close to what you're used to seeing as a PC based Pico user. It's just different. That's all. It's different, has the advantage of being a truly seamless buffer, but it's yep. scrolling, if you will. So when the buffer finally fills, it empties out one side while the other side fills in. And theoretically, if it's in that buffer anywhere, you will not have any gaps. Right. Versus the quotation mark Pico gap. That does not slash does exist. Depends on who you ask. That's right. Big conspiracy. It is a big conspiracy. I can just say that it's never prevented me from seeing what I needed to see. We'll put it that way. But yeah, I bought it. So hopefully do some more content using Snap-on Scope. It's just every time I hook it up to something, I'm like, hmm, I could just use the Pico. <laughs> Did I do that? So, but yeah. Also because, you know, not owning a Snap-on. Come on. The guy who's known for having almost all the tools and doesn't have a Snap-on. Right. You gotta have it. Gotta have it. Yeah, I gotta be careful about that. There's a lot of gotta have it then. Oof. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've got tools I don't turn on hardly ever. And then tools that I would spend an inordinate amount of money on to use the one time just so I could use it. Which, you know, we've talked about a ton. That's what we buy a lot of stuff for. I'm going to use it this one time and it's going to be worth it because I didn't say no to someone who I never want to say no to. Yeah, I think. I don't know what the next ones would be. I'm thinking Hyundai Kia. Yeah. I'm thinking KDS, HDS. I don't. G-Scan does so good for what I need. So good. We lost a job to one two weeks ago, a 23 Kia Sportage for a front radar cow. 
So I called Carlos. I'm probably pulling the trigger on GDS. Like, I'll probably send him the yes after I get off here. Yeah, that's what, two tablets and a single interface? Yeah. Roughly seven grand? Yeah, closer to eight, but yeah. Yeah, I think I had recently... Oh man, it's a Kia, but it's it's kind of, a, I don't know if it's really fast. I never actually dropped the hammer on it, but Stinger. It was a Stinger. A stinger, yeah. Sounds like I'm begging on them, but it's just the reality. Autel and Top Done would not do the calibration, would not start the uh, dynamic. And then I tried to do static and it wouldn't do that either. And then I'm worried there's a problem with the car. Yeah. So then I grabbed, so I grabbed the G-Scan and boom, done. Go drive it, watch it, work up the... Uh, percent learning and man what would i have done without that yeah what year was it i'm pretty sure it was a 2022 i don't think it was a 23 pretty sure it was a 22 it's like some things like i don't know how people are getting along with working on toyota's about tech stream without having rob data i just don't know i don't get how anyone's fixing the car especially a lot of the guys doing aftermarket calibrations or aftermarket guys doing calibrations on cars that's what all those messages on the facebook forums of like there's no codes, but I have this light. <laughs> you need text stream. It's odd, like the reluctance to get some of the tools that are the least expensive to get. Yeah. Like I think everybody sympathizes with Zentry and PWIS and stuff like that, where these are big investments. But now you get TechStream, which you probably already have an interface that would work anyways. Yeah. And a halfway decent laptop can be had for well under 500 bucks yeah. and a subscription and now you have text stream. Yeah. I think I consistently quote that about 250 bucks at a pawn shop, you can get a laptop that'll run what you need to run. I mean, the intelligent thing is to save up and get like an Isaac laptop and be service ready for adding more as you go. But like when we're talking about the excuses, well, I only have $400. Like, okay, well, what scan tools do you have? Okay, well, so you have a J2534 device with that scan tool. So go get yourself a cheap laptop and 65 bucks for 72 hours and do what you need to do. And it includes service information. I know, right? <laughs> it's insane. I know. And what's nice for those that don't know, you can buy a year of service info and then they prorate the cost of the tech stream software when you need to do it, if you need it. So when we first did it years ago, we had bought the service info and then when we needed to add a sub for programming, it was like $45. Wow. Because they go, oh, you already have paid for X amount of this and they prorate it out. And then if you want to buy a sub mid-year, they will prorate the rest of the year in attachment to your service info. So for like the 850 you pay for the year, whatever for service info, if midway through you want to buy TechStream for the rest of the year, it's only like an extra $500. So Toyota's doing everything they can to give you what you need at a fair price. Yeah, it's just a good tool. Yeah. But then do we have the right people holding the tool? The right answer sounds controversial, but I think the answer is no, we don't. Not in general. Right. So a couple of our discussions have been, right? Like my belief that we may have a lot of the wrong people in our profession. Yeah. And I, I guess stuff I want to respond to with that is stuff that you've said. I don't want to sound like I'm taking credit or I have some new perspective on this. Like this is verbatim out of your mouth that maybe not the type of individuals, but what we're getting recruited, who we recruit and who gets sent our way by parents and probably even more so school counselors are not the personality type or the learning types to do that, to, to process data like that, to retain information, reading comprehension is usually severely lacking. And the response is like, well, you struggle with school, you struggle with reading comprehension. Well, you're good with your hands. 
try auto mechanic and now you're sitting there trying to get TechStream up and going or otis or yeah try setting up otis without good reading comprehension skills <laughs> it will not happen yeah it's nothing against the individuals if you're good with your hands but you don't have good reading comprehension you would be better suited as like a carpenter or there's a lot of other trades and professions that are the right answer and i think that was the right answer for those individuals 25 years ago when cars had 26 parts that were replaceable an individual system today would have 20 something parts by it's each individual system i mean we were looking at a 2024 explorer we have at the shop today and the parking brake system is rather elaborate <laughs> so that's the problem i think i think there's a lot of the individuals like like you were saying just to repeat for the ones that haven't heard me say it i do believe there are a lot of the, the individuals that are not the best suited individuals for our industry and a lot of the ones that would be really great in our industry are going to do things like engineering and other fields and not that they're not happy there it's that we have the need in our industry for it we still need individuals to change parts oh yeah i've got a job opening now anyone that wants to check out that <laughs> i think matt does as well so not competing so i mean that's what it's coming down to yeah the competition is going to keep going up i'm fine with that in my area there's no red wing automotive and riverside automotive here in tulsa so we're good there are people that ended up doing this almost by accident who found whatever a passion was ignited or whatever that they had the ability to do it really, really well. And I think some of that was people attributed it to ADHD, like have a high number of people that have ADHD. Well, one, you know, whenever, whenever you talk about ADHD, it's people are spacey, like the ADD part, they can't focus on anything, but it turns out that they can hyper-focus and depending on the area of expertise, or I guess maybe just in general, they end up hyper-focusing on stuff and getting very, very good at it. But that's a dice roll. So I guess there's something I take for granted. And I worry that saying it this way is going to sound like I'm really putting myself over. And I'm not. I'm not that bright. But I notice even in, in our shop, I can show people how to do something. I have not run the tire changer in a year, but we get somebody new and I'll show them how to use the tire changer. And you show them a couple of times. They do it a few times. You wait till the next day and it's like they've never used a tire changer before in their lives. And, and it's not just that. It's many things. It's like that ability to retain or it's so focused on step one. What's step one? What's step two? What's step three? If you kind of have an idea of what you need to do and what does what, you don't need to know the steps. The steps are just going to happen. They're going to make sense. And there's a list of things like that. And I find that happens a lot. So I take for granted, like if I see somebody do something or somebody tells me a story about how they did something, chances are I'm going to remember it or have an idea so I can navigate my way through and I'll figure it out. But I, that seems to be a, a little more on the rare side. I connect with that very, very much. Those of us that run in these circles kind of have in common the ability to retain knowledge, the critical thinking mindset. You know, navigating service info is like a skill and you kind of got to hone it quite a bit. Once you get it, it changes your how much and what you can do over others. But there's a lot of little things like that. Yeah, the ability to break down the process to simple pieces, it kind of makes sense. And it's not exclusive to our industry. So I'm kind of like a vegan. I can't stop talking about my new hobby is skydiving. <laughs> and I'm watching other people start their skydiving, not career, hobby, start themselves into this hobby. And some people, so it's not exclusive to our industry. There are people that have that same mindset, like, ah, he's got it. Picked it up just real quick. And, and I am by no means an expert or anything. I did my 11th jump on Sunday. So wow. 
I think I remembered your first and your second, but 11, nice. Yeah, so my last jump was my first full altitude jump with no assistant. There's two progressions to become a licensed and a licensed skydiver when you actually get to go do things on your own. Like the ability to go, I have this card with a number that says I can go to another drop zone without anyone on the ground on a radio or out in anyone in the plane helping me spot or anyone on the ground making sure I make it back. I can just get up in a plane with people. We can go, we can all jump out, we all land. It takes 25 jumps to do that. So at minimum 25, if you hit all of the marks, well, there's two progressions to get there. There's IED, instructor assisted deployment, and there's AFF, accelerator free fall. So accelerated free fall, your very first jump is from full altitude. So you take a class all day long, you suit up, you go to the very top 12,000 feet, 14,000 feet, you jump out of an airplane and you have two people with you holding on to you, making sure you're stable, teaching you how to become stable from jump number one. I did IED because of a restriction of how many, it takes two AFF instructors to take someone to the top. And there was only one IED instructor and one AFF instructor because one of the other AFF instructors was injured. So I was like, well, I'll do IED, whatever it takes to get out of an airplane right after when I wanted to do it. It only takes one instructor and ID, but you start at a much lower altitude. You go on the edge of the plane. They hold your pilot chute, that thing that you see people grab and pull out. That's the thing that pulls the rest of your parachute out of your bag, out of your rig. So they're holding that and they let go. And then each jump, progressively, they add more onto your own plate of what you can do. So it's very, very simple. It's all kinds of people from all walks of life do skydiving. But watching people learn is pretty interesting and in how certain people will get it and certain people just cannot get it. So you can and look at the statistics of when they assign you a USPA number. You can go get a membership number. It's like 40 bucks for a year or something. I don't know what it is. It's like step two of each progression. You got to go get your USPA member number. So when you look at the member numbers, they're numerical and they just, the next one in line gets the next number. So statistically, it looks like based, and they do the same thing with A license and B license and C, and there's, you can go on and on and on. You get A license, that's where most people go. They just do the minimum to be able to jump out of a plane on their own. They don't care about jumping into water or, you know, being a whatever and getting your B license to do different things saying you're much better. So looking at the numbers, only about 10% stick past getting a number and then getting licensed. Wow. And it's really simple. I'm not like bragging saying, oh, it's really easy. It's you have to pay attention. There's a lot of safety that goes on, right? That's you're jumping out of an airplane. It's inherently dangerous, but it's a simple task of at the end of the day, the joke is the sky's up, grounds down, pull somewhere in between, <laughs> right? That's just... Skydiving doesn't kill you. It's a sudden stop at the end. That's all the things you hear. Rapid deceleration to sun up again. So all of those are a joke of it, right? But realistically, it's a pretty simple thing. And it's very much like watching people in our industry come in. You can identify quickly the ones that will make it and the ones that won't just by how they grasp what we would, some would consider common sense or things that make sense. And a lot of it is the physics part of it. Like watching someone fight and try to swim in the air versus like, look, when it gets wild, just arch. When in doubt, arch. That's the answer. Because when you arch, physics says you're going to fall straight down. So watch people. I watched myself flail. My very first ever time that I got out of control, I was like, oh, and look at that. I arched because it made sense. Just the little things that click. You can watch that mindset go as you're going through and talking about it, getting prepped. So it's the same thing. But it's interesting that I see it's not just our industry. It's just across the board. So the more and more I think about it, the more I find that it may just be that some people are good at things and some aren't in general. Some people are just going to get something that's a, I do this over and over again. There has to be somebody out there that puts the two screws in the door when it's being assembled for a stove. And they're going to do that 7,000 times in a day. That's what they're going to be good at. Almost, almost Daniel Tosh-ish. He can't believe that 90% of people in this country have a job. For 98 years, the Napa name has meant quality parts and service. 
It also reflects top quality training programs to help you build a more successful vehicle repair business. No doubt, the technician shortage is impacting everyone, but you're not facing this battle alone. Napa has the solution by making Napa AutoTech training available near you. Napa AutoTech provides automotive aftermarket technicians career development opportunities through structured, disciplined, measured, and high-quality technical instruction, no matter the technician or service advisor skill level. This instruction enhances understanding of vehicle systems, increases first-time repair capability, and overall customer satisfaction. It also prepares technicians to become ASE certified. It's a fact technicians who receive training to improve their knowledge and skills have a higher sense of job satisfaction. This reduces technician turnover and increases productivity, directly improving a shop's profitability. It is vital to the success of a shop's business that today's technicians are equipped to diagnose and repair today's complex vehicles. With our ever-changing technology, the technician's knowledge and skills need to be updated and refreshed on a regular basis. As you labor over the decision of whether to send your techs to get their skills sharpened, keep in mind, Napa AutoTech training is an investment, not an expense, and it's available to all. Much of Napa AutoTech's training is offered in more than one format to accommodate varieties of learning styles and training preferences so each person can maximize their learning. Whether you're more of a hands-on person or enjoy learning at your own pace, Napa AutoTech is here to provide you with the training you need and the format that works best for you. To learn more about what Napa AutoTech offers, contact NapaAutoTech.com. Yeah, I think Boss, I used to work for, did that. But this is, man, 25 years ago, maybe? Maybe not quite that long ago. But that they had a choice, right? You can go up right now, right away in the morning or whatever, and you know, get tethered to an instructor or a diver. Or you could go through this, whatever, class, four hour, six hour, I don't know if it was eight hour, and then you solo. And so they elected to do that and went through that. And it's like you said, a lot of practicing. Uh, hate to be on a podcast doing hand motions, but you're using your hands almost to steer a little bit. Yep. Hands and feet. There's a, a position that you take to be stable. And if you're holding your hands up almost like you're being held up and you're going to go pull the rip cord, and this is what he was taught, that maybe things are different now. But you move both hands at the same time. One goes up to the kind of above your head while the other one goes to pull the rip cord and before you you really do it you go like three times like one two three pull that is still the same so skydiving instruction hasn't changed much and good news is is physics hasn't changed at all (laughs) (laughs) but yeah it's just asymmetrical that's why you would do that it's muscle memory you'll see people do it and they like if you ever ask me hey keith show me how you pull your parachute i'm like oh okay you'll see i will literally just other hand will go above my head to be symmetrical. So, and it's all muscle memory because you revert to your lowest level of training in the event of a, a real emergency. You're defined by gross motor skills and what you've trained for over and over and over again. And it kind of reminds me of, so I did a short stint in law enforcement and there was a, a part of that that we were taught about going to gross motor skills in fight or flight and why certain things, why we train certain ways. And when you're training and you're yelling and you, if you go watch a lot of breakdowns of like police interactions interactions, you'll see like, man, he is just consistently yelling, put your hands up, put your hand. And that's because training has dictated that if you're yelling, you're talking, if you're talking, you're breathing, if you're breathing your life. So it's just a part of, of doing that over and over again. And there's a lot of weird stuff to that. But the one that hit home the most was they were breaking down an incident between some federal agents and cartel. And two of the three deceased federal agents had empty shell casings in their pockets. 
that were found. And that's because during training at the range, they would shoot, pick up their brass, put it in their pockets. And so those two people reverted to their lowest form, the lowest capable training, which was at the range, because that's where they did all of their shooting training. So during a live actual firefight where they passed away, they are picking up brass and putting it in their pockets. It's like, oh, so muscle memory and training is a real, real thing. You will die on the hill that you practiced on. That is how it works. So yeah, with skydiving, I kind of try to do the same thing. Constantly practicing, look right, grab right, look left, grab left, peel, pull, punch right, peel, punch left, arch. It's just over and over and over again. That's emergency procedures. So that way, if something happens, same thing with automotive repair, with process, right? If you are a sloppy individual who typically doesn't torque things and typically doesn't look up specifications, when you are at work and there's a lot going on at home and you're rushed and you're on flat rate, what you will do is your lowest level of training. So if you consistently don't try to do the right things, it will come out in the worst way possible. It'll be the day that you're rushed, that you've got a lot going on because there's never enough time to do it right the first time, but there's always time to do it over again. Yeah. So that's what will happen. And that's why I abhor flat rate. I mean, I get it. It works in some shops. Some technicians love it. I just think that the individuals that I'm interviewing today, the younger individuals I'm trying to get in the industry, flat rate is not something that entices them at all. It seems horrendous to them. So we don't have a flat rate technician in our shop. We're looking for a mechanical technician, but that's a situation we would have to talk about. Who are we attracting? And each individual will have a different way of, you know, there's no right way and wrong way. If you follow me on some Facebook groups, maybe you would assume I have the thoughts that there's only my way or the highway, but <laughs> I typically try to articulate why that is a problem for each individual situation. So I think what I've found is that a lot of technicians that are younger are less interested in flat rate. They would rather have an hourly pay, maybe a production bonus, depending upon their type of work they're doing. All the guys have a production bonus at the shop, but if they don't bonus at all, they don't really care because it's icing on the cake. Lion's share of what they expect is out of their hourly pay. That's how we do it, but it doesn't, I get it, it doesn't work everywhere. And some guys are flat rate or die. The attraction has to be like the meritocracy of it that you're kind of paid what you're worth based on how much production. I understand that. I'm talking mostly from the technician's perspective. From managerial perspective, the attraction to me has to be, it kind of is motivates. So you, you don't have to find ways to motivate. At least initially, you probably won't. And then after that, I think it's that if you want to set your labor profit margin at 70%, that's what it is. Done. Boom. Yep. Easy to track. Yep. And it's financially protects the owner. Uh, we were slow. So I, my payroll was slow too. So that's the issue I have though, is now it's not fully meritocracy because if I fail to produce, my paycheck goes down. If you fail to get cars in here, my paycheck goes down. Well, I think that breaks it. So, And I think automotive repair is so complicated today that labor rate times don't account for the actual amount of research required for each job. If you were to follow me around for a day in the shop and me talking to even the guys are doing mechanical repairs now. It's at least three times a day I say, hey, it does not have to be fast. It just has to be 100% right. I would rather them take four hours to do something that should take, that would take a flat rate tech an hour and 20 minutes. But I know that they went and looked up every single bolt spec and torqued every single bolt. And we did a pre-scan and we did a post-scan and we did a 15 mile test drive and all the monitors got set and the car was rechecked and quality controlled. And somebody went out and cleaned the car before we gave it and parked it out front and called the customer. That's what we try to do on every car. And that is inefficient in a flat rate world, but we've had zero comebacks. There's been no like, hey, this tire's low or whatever. I think that's the way it's going to have to be eventually. 
cars are way too complicated compared to what they were. Yeah, I mean, otherwise you'd have to have this system in place that the flat rate mechanic or technician is going to do probably this narrow field of services or this narrow field of car lines. And they're not going to do like you're saying. That would be somebody else. I would go to somebody that's probably less per hour, maybe even hourly. And they're going to be the one to do the maybe the quality control check and make sure all the monitors are ran and do the post scans and clean the vehicle and all that. Well, now that's another person hired. If you only have one of them when they call off or they're on vacation. Right. And presumably the shop will maybe have to get bigger because depending on how many technicians, producers you have would dictate how many support staff you would have. And I think that how many bathrooms, how many parking spaces, how many sets of tools. I think it can be done. Flat rate can be done. It can be done really well where, you know, everyone's pretty happy, but I don't know. I just feel like I'm trying to think of other professions that require the same amount of like cognitive reasoning. I'm not saying every freaking job we do on every freaking car is just a brain buster, but there are things that like you're saying, like unless you see this vehicle or car line model a lot, it doesn't matter really what you're doing. You probably should be going to service information first to at least scroll through the process. Rather than finding out after the fact, I got the transmission in there, call the mobile guy or send it over to so-and-so to program, or I will go grab the scan tool and program it and find out there's a QR code on the side that you needed to get or some numbers and you can't see them anymore because they're behind a bracket. 17 Corolla. Yeah, there you sit. So it's like more and more often you should be sitting over at a laptop or a computer scrolling through on your tablet. Now there's a lot of stuff you can Yeah pull up on the tablet, but still you're scrolling through service info. Get that a lot with new customers. They'll call us for a diag and we're rolling back to where we won't do a diagnosis for someone who's not a normal customer. We're kind of pushing most of them to the shop unless they're a normal shop customer. In the mobile world for us, we only service other repair shops and collision centers, but we're getting a lot of diags that are just, the car is not in a state we should be looking at it. It's at a place that reveals a larger problem. There's shops that are just missing a couple things. Like there's a lot of great shops out there. They're trying pretty hard, maybe missing out on some training, maybe don't have the staff where they need to be. But, you know, overall, they're still fixing and repairing vehicles and doing stuff. But then we are showing up to shop. No one in that building should be touching a car. The building's unfit. If someone was to look at this, I would never ask a technician to work in it. We have a couple shops we've identified and we are never going back to that shop. Every car from that place has to come here. You can't send someone to a building with two lights in it. The floor is scattered with stuff and it's a skating rink because the amount of transmission fluid that's in the concrete. If it's even concrete, we've been in shops that literally have a dirt floor, a pole barn building with dirt floor. Duh, I was just going to say that when I was in Kansas. There's a couple shops with dirt floors. Look, if that's where you're at and you're working towards something different, but you're aspiring, awesome. But if you've been there 18 years, like, no. So yeah, there's shops that just shouldn't, a lot that just should not be there. We'll be called out for a car to, hey, can you come diagnose this transmission issue? And we get there and it's on transmission number two and it's got check engine lights on and wire nuts to the mass airflow sensor. And, and there's just one done on the car that's got a different size total tire than the other one. And it requires a relearn, but third used transmission and it's having the same shift problem, but the harness is hacked. That's real. Like we get there and there's no battery in the car. We got a battery somewhere for this. Let me find it. You know, oh, it's over there. And it's buried between three cars like you want me to diagnose a transmission issue and it's got a flat tire, no battery, and it's buried behind three vehicles. Why am I even here? So, and that's literally what we see often. The problem is, is that that shop looks exactly the same as mine to the general public. Not much that differentiates us. Yeah. A friend shop owner is telling a story 
I'm not saying that this actually happened. It was more of a hypothetical. Yeah. Yeah. Very hypothetical. But he owned a, I would say a very well-respected shop, especially amongst other professionals. He's a trainer and they did really good work. He had a friend that owned a shop, I don't know, maybe half a mile away. His friend had a nice big house, a cabin, an airplane, jet skis, a boat, going on fishing trips all the time. And it was that shop that you bring your vehicle in, and this is where the hypothetical came. Same exact car, same exact issues, going in for a misfire. Goes to the friend's shop, and it gets plugs, wires at the time, coils, cap rotor, maybe a fuel injector. And while they were in there replacing these parts, they found the broken wire to one of the fuel injectors. Fix the wire. Don't tell the customer. Call them up. Your car's fixed. Here's the bill. It's $1,500, $2,000. Customer pays, cringes, but pays. Gets in their car. It's never run so good. Look at all the stuff they did to it. They're happy. Same car, same issue goes to my friend's shop and they spend whatever, two hours to find this broken wire, fix it, and the customer comes to pick it up and the bill's $400 or whatever, and they're furious. Yes, the car runs great, but you charged me $400 for this $4 part. You fixed a wire. You can't roll into Diag like all the other shops do. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, And that's a huge issue. And I'm not saying my friend just scraped by, but he didn't have an airplane. He didn't have a cabin until much, much later. And that's a big issue. <laughs> it's a big issue that... I suppose if we want to sound really smart and talk like economists, just like a perfect example of Credence good service. We know better the value we're providing the client than the client could possibly know. I quit a place over parts sold per diag line, ticket average per technician. A technician in multiple dozens upon dozens of unethical practices, but he was the highest flagging technician. Right, He'd get a car in with a check engine light diag, EVAP code, and he'd get four parts on that car. He'd, he'd get a canister, a purge valve, a vent valve, and a hose kit. Heck yeah. Give the car to Keith, and it was 0.8 parts per diag line. Fix the hose that came off, I'd, whatever. My stuff like that was not phrased that way, but the last two shops, when I left, their part sales went up like significantly. Yeah. There is zero benefit to the owner if they're getting away with the putting parts on and the customer paying for it. It's the norm to the point where I was in a Facebook group and I was like, that's theft. They were they were like, well, this technician did this wrong. And so I'm going to back flag him. And, and I was like, well, did he do the work? Like, yeah. I was like, well, then you got to pay him. Well, he's got to do it over again for free. I'm like, can't do that. He's got to do it over again. You need to coach him. You need to you know, figure out what the issue is. is. Did you not make it clear? Did you buy a subquality part? Did you, did he install it wrong? Did he not read the service info? Has he not been trained? Is he not the right technician for this job? Right. And if, and if all of those things are checked off, then you write him up. If he made a mistake that he has been trained for, has he been given all the right tools, service information available? Has he, you know, all those things. And then you terminate if it's the second or third time or whatever. It is what it is. And I was like, you just have to pay him. And they're like, well, that's, that's ridiculous. And I was like, well, look, if, if he did the work and then you're going to make, you can't make him do work for free. You cannot. You will. You have. You do, but you shouldn't. Like that's, I just, and I have a poor choice of words. I get passionate. I call the guy a crook because I think if you're a shop owner and you make a technician do something for free that is flat rate, you are a crook. 
That's just... I mean, that's what they had to do with salaries. You would salary somebody so that they could work 60 hours a week and you'd pay them for 40. So they had to kind of change rules because it's yeah borderline abusive. Exactly. So during that conversation, he was like, oh yeah, well, last week when you told a customer it needed a wheel bearing and you put it on there, it didn't fix it. I bet you charged them. Absolutely not. I unfortunately have a shelf of parts at our shop that I bought that we put on a car that didn't fix the car because I was wrong. And we put it back on the shelf. We didn't charge the customer for the labor, the part, or the diag. Rediagnosed the issue and continued on. I have a high-pressure fuel pump for a Volkswagen, a Bosch one. I have impact sensors for Jeep Renegade that I purchased the wrong parts because I purchased the same wrong parts that were installed at the auction. I've got parts, and I don't charge for them if we did it wrong. That's not the right thing. I, As a business owner, I try to make it to where our profits are in a position where if I make a mistake, then I can pay for it, and it's not the customer's mistake. So, but that was, he was like, well, I bet you did that because to me that made that sound like, well, he does the same thing. Like, how is that even close to right? So it just frustrated me to no end. Like that's the norm. Same here. The famous mini Cooper that I misdiagged when never actually put a part on it, but yeah, it was never in the state you even are in (laughs) (laughs) or I don't, I don't know. I don't remember the whole story. Yeah. Right. But whatever. It was a terrible call on my part and that part never got bolted on. And by us or anyone else. And then luckily, because I saw all this stuff going on, I reached out to the client and begged them for another chance to look at it. And I got it back. And then, yeah, that was a learning experience. But the thing is, if they would have said, okay, because I called a turbo, I just could not get past turbo. I thought, oh man, think about a sec here, but I'm pretty sure I thought something with the wastegate, not sealing. And I couldn't get past that. So like a mental block. If we would have bolted that turbo on and it didn't fix it, the customer would have had a brand new turbo. Yeah, for free. For free. Yeah. I would have done the same thing. That something that that labor intensive, they get to keep the new part and I'm not billing them for it or the labor. Yeah. So the big issue is there is like, yeah, you call me dishonest or whatever. No, I was wrong. I was Yeah. But yeah, they wouldn't have paid for that. They would have got a brand new turbo for nothing. Yeah. And then I would have had to really fix the freaking car. Because I don't even have to bolt parts on cars or get married to them. You know, that would have really sealed it. <laughs> that would have inked that pretty good. But yeah. Yeah, there is a 21 Corolla somewhere in Tulsa with a new fuel pressure regulator. Just small mechanical parts, like 60 bucks a dealer. A little bit labor intensive. Also has a brand new mass airflow sensor and upstream oxygen sensor. All it needed was an airbox assembly. One that was not made in China. One that was... <laughs> One that actually had the carbon filter and the three diffuser plates inside of it. Yeah, I think I got burned by something like that. I don't think it was a like a Chinese airbox, but it was definitely an aftermarket air filter and a Ford pickup that is canister style the right word. I think that's the right word. And that was harsh. You know, I did a, a talk at ASTE a couple years ago about the value of swap agnostics at some point. And I said, look, you're put in a position where you're like, you have this problem in front of you. You've been doing an actual level of analysis of reading data, understanding what's going on, narrowing down the part. And you're in a funnel and you're like, look, I'm pretty sure this is a skewed XYZ. So testing is going to take about an hour of time and the part is $22. Exactly. I will put the part on the car in lieu of the hour diagnosis in very few circumstances. This is not a monthly occurrence. This is like a two times a year we're like, just put X on it. And if it's wrong, do not charge the customer for it. Just put it on the shelf, mark what it's for. If you're right, put the broke part back on the car, 
look at all the data. Move new part back on the car, look at all the data. Let's figure out how we can diagnose this in the future. What did we miss? What did we not see? How could we have analyzed this problem differently? But that's where the problem is. Someone will put the part on it, it'll fix it, and be like, yeah. And then they put it in the mental bank, X problem, X code equals X part sometimes. And then they ship the car. I'm like, no, stop. Get the car back. Put the bad part on it. Scope all the things. What did we miss? How can we, can we make a test to figure this out next time that's faster? What did we miss? So, I mean, that was my introduction to the diagnostic part of this industry was like, I was getting reamed every day in a shop with diags because I was okay at them. I was not even decent. I was just trying more than anyone else. I would take the car like, hey, we got this weird intermittent issue. We got this check engine light. XYZ's already looked at it. Do you want to look at this? I'm like, yeah, I'll look at it. And I would spend four hours trying to find out what's wrong with this thing, testing everything, just blindly sometimes. And at the end of the day, I'd be like, all right, spend an extra hour or two. And yes, Liz, I spent an hour or two every day for three and a half years after work at the shop for free. I was a flat rate tech re-diagnosing cars I diagnosed that day that we had bought the parts and fixed. And I would intentionally, if I could, hold them over so I could spend that evening putting the broken part back on and putting the new part back on, just looking at all the data and being like, what is skewed? What am I missing? What do I not understand about how this thing works? A solid three and a half years of, and I mean, when I say every day, I mean, it was maybe one day every two or three weeks that I wouldn't stay after doing that. So, I mean, it was, you add that up and that's an extra year of experience I got doing that. I mean, that's what led me to where doing what I'm doing now, which is the same thing. I'm just trying to do it during work now. <laughs> Let the other guys figure it out and then we'll see what I miss and then we'll do it during the work day. But that's what it took. I mean, that's rather than clocking out at six and turning my brain off, shutting the clock, locking the toolbox and leaving, just had to keep pushing. It wasn't kind of a, the Conor McGregor version. I'm not any better than anybody. I just worked harder. That's a really good point. The staying after putting in all those hours. In one year, you had two years of experience. That's a pretty interesting way to think about that. I mean, that's a Elon Musk. I didn't take that. I would have ran with that, but all right. I did it. I mean, I did it. <laughs> I did it before Elon said it, but Elon pointed out that, like, look, if you put in an extra two hours a day, what somebody else accomplishes in a year, you can, even if you're mediocre, and I hope to be above mediocre one day. And currently, maybe I am, even if I'm just mediocre, if I'm working 10 more hours a week than someone else, and I get that much farther in the one year, I've done an extra four to six months of work, right? So I've just been doing it longer. And everyone says that. I shoot for mediocre and then I hang out with you jerks and find out what an idiot I really am. So between you and Pedro and Tommy, Sean. It's literally Justin. <laughs> yeah. John, Scott. Oh, you guys. Yeah, I hate all of you. I, I did that schedule class at Vision and it was like Shotten and Mana and Sean Tipping and me. <laughs> I was up there. I was like, there's a lot of tools owned between all of us. And luckily it was like somebody asked a question. Well, you've got seven of those. What do you <laughs> what do you think about that? <laughs> They're like, oh, and this, this Snap-on, I'm like, good news. We have Mana here who's been beta testing for Snap-on for 25 years. So let's just ask him. And he would know to the nth degree, exactly what went into making that process work and why it was the way it was. Yeah. You know, that's that's what's cool about all of us mobile dyad guys is a lot of us are really young, but it's funny when you're like, wait a minute, some of us are doing like six to 12 diags in a day, five days a week. Like most of the mobile dyad guys will do more diags in a year than what another technician will ever see in their entire career. It's the same thing as everything else. Like it's just experience, just done more. Kind of unfair. Also means I've taken more lashings and beatings than anyone would ever want. I mean, I spent two and a half hours trying to program a key to a Chevy once. 
It was running and driving. I started down that rabbit hole, but I didn't get quite that deep. Mine was a Chevy Cruze, and I ended up doing a CD, and then it magically learned the key. Yeah, I had a Malibu that was like that, that a, a CD fixed it. I'm trying to think it was an Impala also. I nuked a set of brand new keys on a Chevy. So, like straight out of a Stratic GM late labeled bag. Like, this shop calls and goes, hey, this truck got stolen from this guy's driveway, but in the truck's cup holder... It had a set of keys to his Impala or Malibu, whatever it was, in his garage. So he wants us to change all the lock cylinders. They're like, can you come for our keys? I was like, yeah. So he goes, can you just get us the stuff? I said, yeah. So I jumped on the site I normally use for keys and ordered a literal kit from Stratic that was trunk lock, door locks, ignition, set of keys. So it came in a Stratic bag with a GM logo, hollow logo, real parts. I gave them to him. I said, put them in. Call me when you're done. I'll come out and program it. And me, in my infinite wisdom, was like, what I'll do when I get there is I'll take the brand new key that fits a lock cylinder and cover the head in aluminum foil, and I'll put it in the lock cylinder, and I'll hold the old key up next to it, and I'll cycle it on. And when the theft light goes out, I'll pull the foil off and cycle it again and just add the key in, and I'll be there in, in and out five minutes. I was like, yeah. So I did that, and it didn't work. So I was like, huh. So I tried the other key, and it didn't work. And about the sixth hour of messing with this, of trying like SPS, all keys lost, it just kept, you know, B3031 stuck in learn mode. Can't, it wouldn't get out. I just could not figure it out. I ended up cutting just another aftermarket key and it programmed right in. And somehow the aluminum foil, because there's actually data transferred from the key to the car and the car to the key. I've noticed that some of the GMs, the VIN numbers in the key. In the key parameter data. Yeah. And this is one of them. And it was a PK3 or Circle Plus and it scrambled the data to both of the new keys when I was trying that. Something got through the aluminum foil. I didn't get it tight enough. Some some data got transferred to both keys, something. And it, it nuked both of those brand new Stratic keys that would read correctly, but both showed locked and had wrong data in them. So I just cut a key and you know did a 10-minute learn on SPS with a new one, and it learned right in. Successful. Yeah. Still no crank, no start. CD fixed it. Because it, you know I had attempted like 10 key programmings. So yeah, it was just got decimated on that car. Literally had six hours in that car because I worked into the night one night and then came at like five o'clock in the morning the next morning since the car was outside of that shop. And I got done programming it and it wouldn't start. And I called Pedro and I said, hey man, here's the story. Told him the story. I was like, no, it doesn't crank. (laughs) (laughs) The key learned. It says successful. All the data bids look right. Doesn't crank. He's like, try a hard reset. I'm like, oh no. Boom. Busted right off. I was so mad. But millions and millions of war stories as the mobile guy. When I get to be the 17th person that's worked on the car for the one issue. Yeah, I get some stuff like that. I wouldn't say a lot. Not at the frequency, you guys. I mean, you're almost every vehicle you touch has been messed with for a while. We only have maybe three to six customers that will just bring us stuff to work on. Like, hey, I, can you look at this problem with this car? Every single other car of the 20. It'd be about, let's see. Two technicians, six to 10 stops a day. So easily 100 cars a week between the shop and mobile. So ARRO in the mobile world's really low. ARO in the shop, very, very high. Lots of lightning strike cars that get thousands of dollars of repairs. So between those, you know, almost 100 cars a day, or 100 cars a week, pretty close to creeping up on that on heavy weeks. Just very few are jobs that are normal jobs. Everything else is, it's been all these other places. XYZ shop referred us to you. Like, yeah, come drop it off. We'll work it in. And so it's a lot of weird stuff. The amount of incorrect injectors installed in cars, it's so bad. So we had that conversation when I asked you about the flow bench thing the other day. 
I bought one. I, I just bought one. I could have reached out to the company. I've worked with them before and be like, hey, would you send me one of these? And But I, I just said, I just bought one. I bought the one for GDI also, though, just because I need to know. It's less about cleaning them and more about, do these flow the same as the factory ones? <laughs> we just had a spark that had the wrong injectors. I mean, it comes in with like negative 22% fuel trims and everything is right. Like this is either getting not enough air or way too much fuel for no reason. I'll have to dig, but I think I have a video of a, pretty sure it was a Chevy pickup and it would misfire at highway speeds. Injectors five and six connectors swapped. I wish. So, I mean, you kind of go down the ignition rabbit hole because... Spark under load. I mean, I mean, misfire under load, you just assume spark. But it's not spark. I mean, you could scope it. It's not spark. And scoping the injectors is a bit messy, but you could do it. They're being fired, but I didn't know what else to do. So you yank the injectors on the flow bench, idle and medium load, if you will. Fires just fine. Get up to the higher frequencies and the bad cylinder, which I'm pretty sure was cylinder number seven now that I think about it, would stop firing. And I thought maybe it was a machine issue because, you know, it says it's badged to do GDI, but can it really do it? You know, can it do it under high frequency, six at a time? Can it? Yes, it have a similar dwell to what they're put under in the car. Is the latency the same? Is So I start do it all by its lonesome. Same issue. I flip-flop connectors just for grins, and I have a bad injector that was failing high frequency. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. That starts to make me wonder about latency and such. Before I was a technician, when I was just tuning my own cars and stuff, I uh, had a new set of injectors I bought. They were like 850cc for my twin turbo 300ZX. And I'm in the in my driveway messing with it, trying to change the latency number to be more correct for these injectors. And, and that's the amount of dead time, you know, for what the calculated amount of dead time between command and actual open is and command and actual closes. And each injector has its own latency number based on its design type, if it's diffuser plate or pentol or whatever. And you know, it can affect your idle a lot, how much latency you calculate in for this. So I'm, I'm going up in the latency. I get to about like 800 microseconds and I press safe and like, oh, the idle smooths out a little bit. And then the engine just slams like it locked up. And the latency calculation was so high on this injector that it hung one open and hydro locked one cylinder. So for whatever reason, making me think of that story about talking about this makes me wonder, what is the calculated latency in the tool, the flow bench? There, just to put some doubt in what you had with that injector for the next <laughs> one you see. When you're like, is it the tool? Little things like that. There's just so much going on. But, you know, we're just greasy mechanics trying to figure out what's wrong with this three-phase motor. <laughs> right. I should have a milliometer showing up one of these days. Yep. Did uh, Randy send it to you? I think so. That's a good deal. 850 bucks. Yeah, screaming. It's way nicer than my hokey. I think Harvey and Edwin bought an all test together and it was not cheap. And I mean, this is a decade ago, but that was for testing three phase motors. And they just, you know, yeah, Harvey was in Canada, Vancouver, but Edwin was just kind of down in Oakland. So they weren't really that far apart. They just send it back and forth. I looked at one the other day just for grins because of the Pico millimeter thing. And they're crazy expensive. Yeah. I don't know how to pronounce it. I said hokey. H-I-O-K-I-H-O-I-K-I? I don't remember. It's a 3540 series something milliohm tester. I got it used for like 600 bucks on eBay. The bench style though, right? Yeah. Yeah. Bench style. Exactly. So that's why I'm like a Pico for A50? Like send it. Liz was standing right there when I said that to Randy. <laughs> she just hung her head. 
No Disneyland this year, hon. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, funny story was like Bob Parker at uh, Pico. He was there at Vision this year and ended up helping Liz put some banner up. I was teaching a class, you know, off goofing around while she was setting the booth up and she needed some help, but she was standing on a chair and he looked over and was like, oh, no, 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 no. And he helped her put the banner up, whatever. Anyways, I got to talking and Liz's father works in the Department of Defense industry and they do some non-destructive and destructive testing of electrical components on naval ships. And they used a test machine for medium duty testing that is an accelerometer hooked up to a four channel scope. And so he calls me one day and he goes, hey, what do you know about oscilloscopes? I was like, a little bit. What's the question? And he's like, well, we're looking at updating in our components that we use. Our, our test equipment we use now was built in the 80s. And we're looking at upgrading. And we're looking at this brand that looks like it would do it. And it's called PicoScope. Do you know anything about that? <laughs> I was like, it's like a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I got three of them. Yeah. I got at least, we won't talk about how many, but yes. <laughs> if we count 2000 series, we're getting into double digits here. <laughs> So I said, yeah, I'm familiar with the software. I use them. To, and he's like, well, why don't you come look at what we have and tell me if they have a device that works? So I show up there. I go through, I guess I'm allowed to say, yeah, he works at level three Harris. I'm allowed to say what company it works for, not what area or whatever. Anyway, so I get clearance for the takes a month or whatever. He's like, yeah, you can show up. Well, I'll beat you at the door. We'll get you through, get you a visitor badge. I, we, I had to send him all this stuff for background checks and building. We go in in the testing facility and he's got, there's a like a magnetic accelerometer and it's on this machine. They take a huge hammer and swing it down and hit these cabinets and stuff that have like fuses in them to replicate on ship damage. So I get there and he's got an accelerometer hooked to a small little four channel BNC box and it goes, it's got like 16 Ethernet cables that come out and go to a larger box that's got like a bundle of Ethernet that's like eight inches in diameter with how many Ethernet cables on it. And it comes up to the risers and it's just like hung over the building and goes down to two different desktops where they ingress into and come out to this thing. And I'm looking at it and it's extremely antiquated. And I mean, it does not have resolution for anything. And so, cause I had already talked to him about, so he's like, I can't send you pictures, but he explained it to me. And I was like, but I was like, so, so we're clear. There's four channels, right? And he's like, yeah. I was like, all right, cool. I'll show up. So I show up with 4425 and my laptop <laughs> and we hook this thing up. And so I go through and I'm like, all right, so here we can set this man. And I just showed him like how to set up an alarm and send this date. He's like, wait, 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 wait. We don't have to have a technician there running the tool the whole time. It's like, no, first of all, this is PC based. You can just remote into this thing and do it from home. If somebody could go hook up the hardware. So I've shown them setting up alarms and emailing yourself when events happen and they're doing voltage checks for drops in, in circuits, but they're doing it with resistance and they're having trouble finding this problem. I'm like, let's try voltage drop. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, it was awesome. So I I get him hooked up. So at Pico, they've got this, they had a hat that was like diagnostic genius powered by PicoScope. So I got him a hat and some stickers and stuff. And he thought it was awesome. But funny story that we just like the world's intertwined. My father-in-law calls me, who's a, who's a literal doctor, by the way, he's a PhD doctor, intername here. And he was like, you know anything about PicoScopes? I'm like, actually, let me show you something cool. (laughs) (laughs) And this is how we fixed. Toyota Corollas. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sir, clearly I got to have you on again. Hopefully sooner rather than later. Well, I mean, I wasn't sure if Liz was going to have like a second or third episode first, but. (laughs) Yeah, she's shot me down pretty hard now. (laughs) She's on to bigger things. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for coming on again. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you all for the feedback you've been sending about a lot of the recent episodes. And if you have any ideas or 
want to be on the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. I'm pretty easy to find on social media, or you can email me at mattfonslopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, Nap Auto Tech Training, for sponsoring, and thank you to the Aftermarket Radio Network for making this all happen. So until next time, let's try uh, fixing a car with one world at a time. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Twisting Sean's. <laughs> he wants to fix the world one car at a time. We're going to fix one car with a whole bunch of worlds. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody take care. You've been listening to Matt Fonslow diagnosing the aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Matt on your favorite listening app. He's very interested in what you have to say. Let him know what you'd like him to cover and come on the show. Matt is all for advancing the aftermarket. Find Matt Fonslow on social media and connect or on aftermarketradionetwork.com.